is sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. If we actually managed the resources that we had, we could probably do a better job than what we do today where we just simply don't even include it in our regular budget that we vote on on a year-to-year basis. But I just think it was an enormously poor judgment on the part of the leadership of the FBI. And it's really a kind of, who do you think you are? Why not say to the American people, global climate change is not only real, but the urgency of this moment requires a, a call to action to all of America's engineers, all of our entrepreneurs, all of our innovators to say, let's solve the problem together. Today, 94% of Senate Democrats could not even vote to protect babies after they're born. And the only explanations they could offer were bizarre euphemisms and vague references to issues that have no bearing once a child has already been born alive. And now, Stacy Washington. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to the program. Thank you for being with us today. We have wonderful, wonderful program planned for you. We have Christopher Hale. He's a columnist for Time, Fox News opinion contributor, former Obama White House alumnus. And he's going to be with us to talk about analyzing the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates, which is going to be a pretty fun exercise because um, we, we're Christopher Hale's not your he's not your typical guy. We're not going to. Um, we're not going to put him on the left or the right per se, uh, although he, you know, he worked at the Obama White House and the administration. He has a very interesting perspective. He hails from Tennessee. Y'all know I have a thing about Tennessee. Got a lot of extended family there. And I really I'm excited about getting a chance to talk to him because he's going to he's going to give us his take on these 2020 candidates. And I'm, I'm not thinking we're going to agree on everything, but I definitely want to hear what his perspective is here today on the show. Uh, so we're also going to talk about Fed Chair Jerome Powell. He testified today, had a lot of interesting comments. Uh, he he said things that we've been parroting over here, Just and by parroting, I mean we have to say it again and again and again to drive it home, that our federal debt is unsustainable. And he really drove that point home today, so we'll be talking about that a little bit. And yesterday, I neglected to talk about our header for the show, which was the transgender girls track team, um, not so so. There's a track competition, the championships. It's in Connecticut. And the transgender girls, as it were, um, actually beat out the other actual biological girls by a lot. One of them set a new record. Now, if you put their their speed times up against the boys' competition, you could see why they would want to compete against girls. Because if they competed against boys, they were they're they're just there's no comparison. But does that mean it's fair to put them up against girls, biological girls, who would then not be able to uh, to actually withstand going up against a, a guy who's already had testosterone flowing through his body? The difference between male and female testosterone levels is it's off the chart. Men just have so much more testosterone, which is why they're able to build so much more muscle, burn fat so much more efficiently, and why they're so much faster and their reflexes and, and reflex speed the actual power that they're able to attain when they're doing physical activity. It's driven by testosterone and muscle creation. And so, you know, for women, we can't compare with that. That's why we don't have unisex sports. That's why it's so crazy when we hear people talking about how, you know, the, the military is gender free. Women can do anything a man can do. No. So the tests prove that that's not true. 
So it, it's just fascinating to see that the transgenders, um, they're a favorite of the leftists. The leftists love the transgenders. And then when you look at it from the perspective of, of women, the leftists claim they love women. Uh, you know, a whopping, it's well over 60% of women are Democrats. So the women give their votes to the Democrats. The Democrats actually advocate on behalf of the transgenders. The transgenders kick the women's butts in the sports and then the Democrats don't say anything. Feminists aren't allowed to say anything. And if you do, you get your feminist card revoked. You even get booted off of the social media platforms like Twitter and, and Instagram. But in the end, if it's supposed to be policy that benefits women and girls, where is it? How, how is it happening? It doesn't seem like it's happening. So I think one of the things that I, I, I'm just, I'm kind of flabbergasted by is that women on the left continue to put up with this. And in exchange for what? Abortion policy? We can see where that's going. So now we have to pivot over to a woman who's running for the presidency on the left, Kristen Gillibrand. She says that um, severe weather is the greatest threat to humanity that we have. To all of humanity, severe weather is that greatest threat. It's number three. Let's just take what the Green New Deal is. Global climate change, severe weather, is the greatest threat to humanity we have. Scientists have just reached the conclusion that it's happening far quicker than we know. And what New Yorkers know, and what people all across this country know, is when severe weather hits, people die. It destroys communities. So when severe weather hits, people die. Well, that's a generalization that is not supported by the facts on the ground as they lay. When people are not warned about severe weather, then there's a higher probability that people will die. But if you look at the major weather events that have occurred across the country, when adequate warning is given and when authorities coordinate with the weather teams and, and make sure that they're disseminating through their emergency response and emergency announcements and people actually follow the instructions that they're given, the fact is we have a much lower mortality rate. When the governing authorities, your mayor, your municipal, your... your uh, county executive, whoever, is making the announcement that they want a mandatory evacuation or it's heavily suggested that you evacuate, whether it's flood, hurricane, tornado, whatever, when people actually obey those suggestions, there's a much lower rate of mortality because you just get out of the path of the weather and come back afterwards. People who insist on staying, they reap the negative ramifications of being there, which sometimes means people die. Now, in extreme weather events, obviously, I'm not sure what Kirsten Gillibrand is suggesting. Maybe she has some kind of magical weather satellite that she could use. If we could just fund it, she would stop severe weather. Or maybe Kirsten Gillibrand has this idea of, of using um, an amazing secret unicorn fairy type weather device. Whatever she's suggesting, it's not something that has been utilized before. In fact, we know for a fact, we know that we can't control the weather. So instead of tackling issues that we can really get a handle on, like education, social policy, um, tackling the, the debt, these topics are boring. They don't pull on people's heartstrings. They don't trigger emotions. And therefore, she's not going to be interested in talking about those. I do think it's interesting that she says it's the most, I'm sorry, I want to quote her directly, the greatest threat to humanity that we have when actually the, the number one killer of people is abortion worldwide abortion we're talking about abortion rates and I, I actually went to the trouble of downloading the most recent abortion rates for 
all of the known countries on the planet. And while I'm not going to enthrall you with every single one, I thought it'd be interesting for you to see which countries have the highest rates. Now, let's just start off with the A's. Albania has an abortion rate, and that the abortion rate is defined as abortion rates per 1,000 women aged 15 to 39. This is the most recent data. Albania has a 3.48%. Belize has a 59.59% abortion rate. 59.59%. Now, uh, the Federal Republic of Germany, 872 that's wonderful. That's like that's a nice little number. Cuba abortion rate in the communist nation, 46 percent, 46 percent. Greenland abortion rate, 85 <laughs> percent. I mean, those numbers are staggering. And if you keep on down the line, Mongolia abortion rate, 26.89. New Caledonia, 31.29. And you might be saying, well, what about some, some nations that like we've heard of? Like, what, you know, give us some, some actual ones that we know. Qatar, which obviously I'm not sure if abortion is even lawful there. They have less than 1% abortion rate. Um, you know, Spain, 12.98%. Sweden, 25%. Here's one that's kind of interesting. United Kingdom, 20%. United States, 17%. Um, oh, and Russia. Russia's abortion rate, which this is one of the primary reasons why they can't keep up with us economically, uh, militarily, et cetera, because they just don't have enough people and they're not into immigration the way our Democrats are, is 37%. That's their abortion rate. And that's down Russia used to have a much higher abortion rate and they stopped providing abortion for free. And look what happened. The, the rate dropped. So when you talk about the number of abortions worldwide and how many people are being snuffed out due to abortion, you get a clearer picture of what's going on with, um, with, with this issue. Um, so I, I, I would just encourage people to take everything that these candidates are saying with a grain of salt. Don't allow yourself to be sucked into thinking through and, and just believing it off, off the cuff. It, you have to spend time looking at what they're talking about and what they're not talking about. And I'm speaking specifically to people who are more inclined to vote for the Democrats. As these people begin to present their ideas and talk about who they are, pay attention. Uh, Kamala Harris is out there advocating for reparations. Kamala Harris is descended from slave owners. Her father has written essays about it in this, uh, it's the same mag or same online website for people from the, the Jamaicans. It's a Jamaican uh, writer site. He wrote there in January about being descended from slave owners. He traced their lineage all the way back to the slave owner and the plantation owner, landowners, uh, agricultural person. This, this is all in their lineage. She's advocating for reparations. So, I'm assuming because she's a wealthy woman, she's going to be willing to give up some of her millions to, uh, you know, to make this happen for people who are, are actually descended from slaves. Not not her, but other people who actually are. No matter what your position on reparations is, you have to see the irony in her advocating for it when she's descended from slave owners and and considers herself to be a black person. So it's it's we have an opportunity to evaluate everything that they're saying and check it for veracity, and then make a decision based on what is true, what is right, what is honorable, and what we should be believing, if you will. Um, 
so yeah, that that's I, I wanted to cover that. Um, uh oh. So I think people are having trouble. There's no video showing up on Facebook. I'm seeing video on Facebook, but I think there are, and I see some some kind of difficulties here. We might disconnect and start over again here on this next break. We're going to have Christopher Hale. He's a columnist for Time Magazine. And I want to give you a little bit of info on him. He's a native, 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 native middle Tennessean, educated at Rutherford County Public Schools. And after college, he started working in, uh, you know, he, well, basically from a faith position. And he wants to transform human society, particularly in favor of those who are often left out and behind. And at the beginning of his career, he worked for President Obama as a faith leader promoting the common good and later defending those values in Time Magazine and on Fox News. And so he stands up for a new, pragmatic, less partisan way forward in American politics. And this is interesting. Uh, pragmatism, less partisanship. That's going to be really interesting to hear from someone who spent time working in the Obama administration. So uh, that's that's going to be interesting to chat with him about these new candidates, the, the ones who have come forward and said they're going to be doing this thing. We're also going to cover... Um, I, I talked a little bit about, I teased it yesterday, the treadmills were originally designed to punish prisoners. And you may find some irony in that, especially if you own a treadmill. Um, and that some airliners have cameras on the seatback screens, which I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out why they would need to do that. Um, and when I say some of them, these are newer seatback entertainment systems on some airplanes operated by American Airlines, Delta Airlines, United Airlines, Singapore Airlines, those are major airlines that you're likely to be flying on. United, Delta, and American, those are all, you know, those are our own homegrown ones that, that have these cameras in place. Um, and a passenger on a Singapore flight, the reason this became a news story is because a passenger on a Singapore flight posted a photo of the seatback display last week, and the tweet was shared several hundred times, which then generated a news story about it. Now, a United spokeswoman told a reporter on Friday that none of the entertainment systems had cameras, and then after checking, she had to apologize and say that some did. Delta, a day later, said Delta, you know, they have some of their in-flight entertainment screens with cameras. Um, and they stressed that they didn't add them. They came with the cameras when they were installed from the manufacturer. So um, it's something that we should pay attention to. And they should have little covers over them if they're not in use. Um, so it means you might need to bring some scotch tape with you so you can cover yours up yourself when you're riding on the plane. All right, when we get back, we'll have Christopher Hale and more for you. Stay right there. Hello, I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You know, on our spiritual heritage tour of Washington, D.C., we go to the Supreme Court. That's one of the places we go on, on day one, and we visit the inside chambers. We go to where the justices sit, and it's an amazing place to visit, the Supreme Court of the United States. We don't just look at the outside. We go to the inside and see where the justices sit and where oral arguments are heard. So that's just one of the places we visit on one of the days when Washington, D.C., and we also go to Mount Vernon, the home of George and Martha Washington. So we're going in September. June's full. September will be filling up soon. If you want more information on this Spiritual Heritage Tour, go to spiritualheritagetours.com. That's spiritualheritagetours.com. 
Hi, I'm Croft Loritz with a legacy moment. Some time ago, Karen and I were at a dinner party. As we were leaving the party, a couple who lived near us said that they had gotten lost on their way to this home. They wanted to follow us back to our community. I said, it's a little tricky coming out of here, and there's a lot of traffic, so stay close to us. As we were driving, however, they fell further and further behind. Traffic started getting in between us, and unfortunately, they got lost again. That reminds me, we need to stay close to the one we're following, or we too will get lost. Sometimes we're following too far behind the Lord, and traffic is getting in between us. How we respond to God's leading in our lives makes all the difference. There's a very important word for us in Joshua chapter 3, verses 3 and 5. They're getting ready to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Down to verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. When we're on mission with God, on God's mission, we need to keep in mind two very important things. Number one, follow. Go where he is leading. Get it in gear. Then secondly, consecrate yourself. Make sure your life is clean. Be who God has called you to be. God wants to use clean, prepared vessels. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. Stay close to the one you're following or you'll get lost. In the words of Henry Blackaby, you can't go with God and stay where you are. Stay close to God and go where he leads. Thanks, Crawford, and thank you for listening to today's Legacy Moment, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Global Ministries. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. I am so pleased to welcome our next guest to the show. It's Christopher Hale. He's a columnist for Time, Fox News opinion contributor, and former Obama White House alumnus. Hey, Christopher, thanks for joining the show today. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate being on the show. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. I'm, I'm excited to hear your take on these new presidential hopefuls who are coming in on the Democratic side. Um, they've made a lot of really interesting announcements, and the platform has definitely changed from a few years ago when candidates were announcing, um, you know, that there seems to have been a radical shift. Absolutely, and I think that what you're seeing is that Bernie Sanders, though he lost the 2016 primary, he's clearly won the policy debate going forward. The great irony, of course, is that will Bernie actually uh, take the spoils of his win? Um, he seems to move the conversation, particularly on economic and health care issues, to the left. But he is not the dynamic personality that perhaps folks are going to get behind in this election. I think the big question going forward for the entire debate uh, for 2020 and beyond is, is twofold. Is Joe Biden running for president of the United States? And is Beto O'Rourke running for president of the United States? Because otherwise, uh, the center lane is going to be occupied by Amy Klobuchar, who more or less supports Medicare for all. Um, she support free college, but this is this is unimaginable. I mean, this is unimaginable that um, four years ago that you would have ten candidates, the Democratic candidates, mainstream candidates running for president of the United States that are supporting uh, single payer health care in the United States. Here's the big question that you and I should discuss: Is are we going to go too far to left to win a general election against Donald Trump? And I think that's the that's 
to be to be determined, obviously. So, Christopher, you brought up a lot of great points there, and I think it's a worthy conversation because a lot of Americans who consider themselves to be Democrats but are also, you know, of a faith background, they feel left behind by this this paradigm. They feel um, they feel as if there isn't anyone for them to represent where they find themselves. They're much more moderate. Um, they, I would consider them to be leftists, but in their own orientation, when they look at politics, they see themselves as being much more in the middle. Some of them might be tempted by Donald Trump, unless, as you said, there was a Joe Biden. Um, I don't know about Beto O'Rourke. He seems a little extreme, too, but I, I guess we're, we're dealing in gradations here. <laughs> we, we are. And I think that, so I, I had the opportunity. I, I grew up in a suburb of Nashville, but I ran for Congress in rural Tennessee. And just to give you since rural Tennessee is a strange place because it was it was Democratic territory till the end. I really we we, we made it a Democratic majority in the state till 2010, and then you know the the red flood came came about. And what you're speaking of is 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 so punctured on the reality on the ground here. Is folks still? I, and I actually have a new new op-ed I'm going to promote myself in the Tennessee in the day talking about this. But folks in rural Tennessee, which is predominantly um, colored by people of faith, feel the Democratic Party has become not even so. It's not even a question of policy. I, I'm actually going to make an argument that it precedes policy. That a lot of folks that I talk to in rural Tennessee, they feel that the Democratic Party actually does not care about them as people, and, and to be very blunt, does not like them. And if, if you can, I just want to give a, a small little, a, a pithy way if someone put it to me, um, in Bradley County, Tennessee, which is in, in, in East Tennessee, rural East Tennessee, um, this fellow put it to me this way. You know, we need Democrats who, who can preach with the preachers, mourn with the widows, drink, drink with the drinkers, and play cards with the gamblers. And what he meant by that was we need folks that are connected to the visceral and lived reality of our people. And I think the Democratic Party has become too defined by by the East Coast, too, too defined by secular humanism, and not enough defined by folks living on the ground. There is such a profound disconnect with rank-and-file Democrats across this country and with the party establishment in Washington, D.C. And that's actually, I think, if you look in Tennessee, Bernie Sanders did shockingly well in rural Tennessee. And we're talking about a, a, a 75-year-old socialist Jewish man from 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 born in Brooklyn, but he, his his eye in the face to the establishment, that resonates in rural Tennessee. That resonates in rural communities. And so I think Joe Biden has this strange gift of having ability to connect with, with rural communities, with rural Democrats, with former Democrats, or now Trump Democrats, maybe Trump Republicans, but also, also being formidable and truly the heir apparent in some capacity to, to Barack Obama. So I think he represents, I'm not endorsing it, but I think he represents a very viable option. For me, to be very blunt, the only way you can win this election is by focusing on the five states we lost in 2016 that we should have won. There's 120,000 people that we really need to hone in on because I think that's our only pathway forward for 2020. Okay, so, uh, you know, this might not be the best question for you, but I'm dying to hear your answer. How do Republicans speak to those people you were talking about? The drinkers, the you know, they're, they're they sound like salt of the earth people. I, I have a lot of family in Tennessee. I went to college in Tennessee for a couple of years. I love Nashville. Um, I, I love the state of Tennessee, and I love the people there. But they're, they're this is not your average everyday American. They're very regionally specific. They're very different. 
And when you talk sure. about the Bible Belt or or them being Christians or spirit, you know, spirit led people, uh, the Democrats don't really have a place on their um, in, in their in their group. You know, if 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 you think the parties have different stadiums where different constituents sit in the stadiums and they carve a space out for, you know, unions, carve a space out for transgenders, for, um, you know, feminists, uh, for people who support abortion. The Democrats have increasingly crowded out individuals who have a a faith walk, people who believe in God, believe that Jesus Christ actually answers their prayers, believe that they, you know, they, they, they go to church on a regular basis, they pray, they read their Bible, they memorize scripture, they might send their kids to a parochial or Christian school. These are there. There are not a lot of room in the stands on the Democratic stadium for these people. And I think that I think the question the question is twofold. On the Republican side, I think what's really remarkable about Donald Trump, and you, you know, I, I I'm, I'm a politician, so I have to give credit in this capacity. This man is a billionaire from New York City who's never left New York City. You know, he his his biggest movement in his life, his biggest movement in his life was going from the from the Bronx to Manhattan. That, that for him, is crossing the Tiber. That is his great experience. But what's remarkable about it is I, when, I, when, when Donald Trump visits the South, there's a sentiment that I, I get with the people I talk to, I don't necessarily agree with it, but people I talk to and see in, in the flesh is that there's a sense that Donald Trump likes these people, and these people like Donald Trump. This is, so that, that's my big argument. I don't think the Democratic Party has to be all things to all people, to quote St. Paul. Um, I also don't believe um, I one, one one person put it to me this way. I think it's actually a really profound way of putting it. This is a older white heterosexual guy from rural Tennessee, and he says he said to me during my campaign, "The Democratic Party cares about everyone on the planet, but they don't, they don't care about me." And what that struck me as is we have tried so hard to be all things for all people. That if you are not, if you somehow do not check a identity box, then frankly we don't give a darn about you. That's the sentiment that seems to be so held. And so I, when I, I know Joe Biden, I, Joe Biden's a friend of mine, and when I am with Joe Biden, my sense is this man connects with people of all different backgrounds, people of faith like him, the, the people of color like him, boring old sixty-five-year-old white guy, heterosexual men like him. There's a sense of his ability to connect across different pathways. And I think his appeal is even different than Barack Obama's. And I, I just, for, for the pure politics of it, I, I'm very intrigued to see a Joe Biden-Donald Trump election. I think I think the map might look different. I think there's a chance that Joe Biden can compete in Georgia and Donald Trump wins New Hampshire. There's just, it, it opens up a different possibility. And I think for Americans, it's healthy that we get a new map. No matter what the turnout is, we need a 50-state campaign. We're missing that in this country. Okay, so a uh, couple things. First off, I sure. I think one thing that Democrats could focus on is policy instead of focusing sure. on demographic boxes. And when you describe the people that yeah. you're just talking about, you you gave everyone a demographic box. You said you know the sure. boring old white people, which if I was a white person. I would kind of be insulted by that. I wouldn't want to vote for someone who thought I was boring just because I was old and white. Um, and mm-hmm. just coincidentally, some of my most exciting friends are older than I am and they happen to be white. Um, and then <laughs> there's the policies that really impact people more than their demographics because the people that I find the most 
uh, in common with don't actually match my demographics if we're just looking at the surface, the skin tone, the height, the weight, all that stuff. I don't match that group. But when you look at socioeconomics and our belief systems and our habits, I'm right in line with this group of people. So that's why policy works better than focusing on the characteristics or attributes of people. But I also want to just touch on um, there's a, a persistent meme that goes around about Joe Biden and that is that he's very handsy with women and young girls. Sure. And there are just countless pictures of him gripping women from behind on their shoulders, holding his face really closely and whispering in the ears of little girls at the White House when he was vice president. How do you see him dealing with that um, in, in a presidential fashion? It seems like he would just be completely ripped apart by um, – Anybody who has a daughter, anybody who's a woman, anybody who's married to a woman, you know, it, it seems like it would be a problem for him. You know, you say that, and I wonder if it would be a problem for the President of the United States, who currently has 18 women accusing him on the record of sexual assault and even more um, during during his years. Well, there and aren't any pictures. If there were pictures, Christopher, if there were pictures, sure. I think it'd be a problem. But we all know that Democrats yeah. have a penchant for bringing women out of closets, making accusations, and then once they've taken the candidate down, like Herman Cain, the women fade off into that good night, and they don't even press charges. So I absolutely well, believe I that women should have you know their, their day in court, and if you're accusing someone, there should be an investigation. But what I've seen so far is that the man had a lot of consenting relationships, but that there isn't a lot of veracity to these claims that he's done things to women against their will. Well, let's go, let's go back to Joe Biden. So I, I think I want to answer this, though. So obviously, the Democratic primary and the treatment of women in personal life, it, it, it really is a top-tier morality issue. In a way, quite frankly, it wasn't eight years ago, 12 years ago. So I think that Joe Biden's going to have to address it head-on immediately. Um, I think his best argument is, and this is something I think it's worth talking about, too, is who is a Democratic base? Who goes to, to, to the Democratic primary? What, is, what does this look like? I think he's got to address it. I think he's got he's to claim. And, uh, he's number one. He has to say, you know what? I was wrong. I, I made mistakes. And he, he, he can claim in some capacity. I think people understand that he's a 74-year-old man and the norms of us. I'm 29 years old, and I think if I... You know, I, the expectation has changed, and it's a good thing. I argue it's a great thing. I think he needs to acknowledge that he himself um, at times has violated the norms and, and just uh, the the way a, a, a man of power ought to treat female colleagues around him and, and females in public life. So I do think he needs to address it head on. Um, and my the question, I think the question that should be asked, um, is it disqualifying? I think the answer is a hard no, um, unless there is something that we do not know about um, that is out there. I do not think it's disqualifying. Look, I'll be honest with you. I think the two stories that that are going to be looked up about Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. again and again and again is the death of his wife um, in a car wreck and his children being there in, in 1974, uh, mere two weeks before he took office, and how that colored his wife, life. This man, he skipped. He skipped the, um, the cocktail hours. He skipped the parties in Washington, took the Amtrak home, play, uh, train home to Delaware to be with his children and raise, raise his family. I think that story will come front and center. And I think the story about the death of his son, Bo, as well, uh, from, from cancer. I think that, all in all, Joe Biden is an honorable, decent man. And I think the vast majority of Democrats um, in this primary see that. And frankly, I think that the vast majority of Americans see that as well. Um, 
I once again, um, I think that there's got to be some sentiment of I'm not a historian, but historians talk about uh, anachronistic claims, and we have to be careful on nuanced situations to, to just totally blast people out of the water. Um, I do think age matters and cultural norms matter, and I think it's important that they change. But you and I are Christian. I think there's got to be an ounce of mercy and grace and growth um, for 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 these marginal for these marginal misdeeds. I would argue um, that are not um, it, it, unless there's something I don't know about. You know, from what I've seen, I think that these are these are situations that can definitely be overcome. But I think he's got to address it out of the gate, and I, I imagine he's mm. going to get hammered on it on day one. Well, I think. Um... If he's not immediately told that he's disqualified from running for office, then it would be a double standard because so many people who are Republicans sure. have just had one one instance, one picture, one uh, one comment that was misconstrued, and they lose their entire career, they lose their livelihood, um, one donation to the wrong organization, they lose their company. And so on the right, the backlash is, oh, did you do something wrong? Or did you think something wrong? Did you say something that was misconstrued? Did someone get triggered? You're done. And people are <laughs> summarily put, put out into the cold to die, you know, outside of the, the, the warmth of the, you know, the protection from the elements. Meanwhile, on the left, it's kind of like, well, it depends on who you are. Are you important? Sure. Do you have the ability to impact other people in a positive way? Do you, do you have power like Mika Brzezinski? Comments that she's made on air are overlooked because she is the co-host of a very powerful show on MSNBC, and she has a lot of family connections that put her in the halls of power. So she's given a pass. Same thing with Joy Reid. And I think if we see the same thing with Barack Obama, the people in Tennessee – or not Barack Obama. If we see the same thing with Joe Biden, the people in Tennessee that you were referring to, the people of faith who are looking for someone who's like them, they're going to see yet another example of – people saying that they believe in one thing, like the Democrats say they support me too. And people have been taken down for less than the picture show about Joe Biden. And so it's it's an interesting, like, I'm wondering if he's going to declare because it's such a minefield right now and because people are sure. currently being taken out for, for less yeah. than what we've seen in the pictures. But I agree with you that he's an honorable man and definitely a moderate. I hear the music and you've been fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much, Christopher Hale, columnist for Time Thank and Fox opinion contributor. Thank you for coming on today. All right, we're going to be back with more right after this. Can solid teamwork building principles apply to all of life? Here's Tony Dungy, author of The Soul of a Team, with today's Uncommon Moment. I remember a time when the Colts were preparing for the college draft and needed to choose between two defensive players. One was big, strong, and dominant on the field. The other had great speed but was undersized. Both were exceptional college players. Yet we had some questions about the first player's attitude and commitment. So we brought in three of his college teammates and asked each of them, if we brought you here, which of your teammates would you want to have on our team as well? None of them named the player we were considering. We ended up drafting the second player, and he was a good choice. When you're selfless, you'll earn the respect of your teammates. Tony Dungy, best-selling author of The Soul of a Team, from Tyndale House. More at CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com. 
Holy Spirit speaks to everybody. The problem is most folks don't listen. Lonnie Poindexter. If they do listen, they don't take it to heart or they get fearful or whatever. But when you listen and act upon it, wonderful things happen. And because a man of God heard the voice of God and acted upon it, it blesses me today and you as well for listening in. Lion Chasers, weekday mornings at 10 Central on Urban Family Talk. Bishop Vincent Matthews. Every one of my children have gone to college uh, that are in college on an wow. academic scholarship. And we taught them in our home. So reevaluate wherever you bought your hair or got it done. <laughs> one day it's going to be out of style. But your heritage is not just for what am I going to do today. It's for your children's 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 children. The Marriage, Family and Life Conference is coming June 20th through the 22nd. Learn more and register at UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Securing America. Drones, those small aircraft that can fly by remote control or by themselves with GPS, are becoming more common. Companies like Amazon expect to use them in the near future to deliver items you purchase. Law enforcement and the military use drones to gain information, and some people just have them for fun. But all this new air traffic has caused problems, from the unintentional to the possibly dangerous. Airports have been shut down due to drone activity spotted near runways. The F FAA has in the past few years demanded drone registration. A new rule placed into effect over the weekend is that those registration numbers be affixed to the flying device on the outside, whereas it used to be allowable to place them inside the device in a battery compartment. But now there's concern a drone could be carrying a bomb and that opening up the drone to find its registration could be deadly. I'm Eben Brown, Fox News. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I will say that, and as I said in my statement, that the U.S. federal government is on an unsustainable fiscal path, by which is meant that the that debt as a percentage of GDP is growing and now growing sharply, growing, growing quickly. Uh, faster, and, and that's, that is unsustainable by definition. We need to stabilize debt to GDP. Um, the timing of doing that, the ways of doing it, through revenue, through spending, all, all of those things are, are not for the Fed to, to decide. But, what, but as perhaps, for lack of a better term, one of the chief economists in the nation, to be able to get adv- give advice to the, to the folks that are out there, to the country as a whole, about the things that we have in our future, and about the threats to our future, Social Security will go bankrupt unless we start managing it. Is that a fair statement? Well, I, on the I think, current trajectory, I, I think I, if I could say it this way, I think what happens over time is that um, we wind up spending more and more of our precious revenues uh, to service the debt, to pay interest to people who own the debt as opposed to investing in the things that we really need, education, all, all the things that we need to be investing in so, in so that we can compete in the global economy. Wow. So that was Fed Chair Jerome Powell saying that the federal government's on an unsustainable fiscal path. And he's right about us servicing debt and doing things that obviously we're going to have some debt. There's, this isn't about pie-in-the-sky dreams of never having any debt. But to continue to add on to it to fund things that we just don't need to do. It's like a drunken spender on a binge 
and you try to say, hey, you know what? This, this doesn't look wise. I, you might want to, nope, they're just going for it and there's nothing you can do about it. That's not what we want. So uh, it's a good thing that he's actually telling the truth in Congress and, and giving out a, an opportunity for people to kind of understand what's, what's happening to us here. Uh, I want to open up the phone lines. We are happy to take your phone calls today, 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. If you're tuning in, uh, thanks for being here today. You can always live stream us at AFR.net or urbanfamilytalk.com. And you can find out about the conference that we're hosting there as well. So um, I, <laughs> I, I think there's a, a you know, there's, I think there's a bit of a disconnect. And I really appreciated Christopher Hale's comments um, about the, the, you know, the, the middle Tennessee folks the, and people in Tennessee, in the state of Tennessee that he's met, who've said they want someone to drink with and smoke with and et cetera, et cetera. You know, a lot of people want that. I don't, I don't think that's unique to Democrats, but I do think it is so, it's like, it's one of the craziest things ever that we wouldn't have both parties going for those people, that we don't have both parties going for the black vote. I mean, in a meaningful way uh, for the Hispanic vote for, and, and not by pandering to those groups, but by saying this economic policy works for Americans. And let me show you how it works for you. As opposed to saying, you're a boring white guy or you're a black American or you're, you know, you're a white American saying, look, you, this is the, the town that you live in or the region of the country that you live in is impacted by these phenomenon, fiscal phenomenon, you know, policy, whatever. And the way to handle that, the way to deal with that from the federal government is to, let's say, get the government out of the way. Or maybe the government has a program that would help what's, what's happening in your area. Maybe it's uh, having some things that are, um, you know, th these think tank ideas where they come in and they help people disconnect from the government. Whatever the case might be, it's better for us to see each other as fellow Americans rather than the demographic boxes. And I genuinely, I, I think, no, no, I'm not blustering. I'm not, I, I genuinely feel as if the demographic box checking on the left has gotten so prevalent that there really isn't a way to talk to someone uh, without acknowledging their demographics or without kind of speaking to their demographics. And that to me is really unfortunate because there's, there's so much more to us than just the one aspect that you can see. Um, when you meet people, you don't expect, well, I mean, maybe people do expect people to be a certain way based on what they look like. But isn't there something to be said for actually getting to know the person and then understanding them and then kind of, you know, feeling the, the truth of who they are? It's just, I just, I'm a little flummoxed because I just think, especially for young people who have a, a very diverse, you know, friend group where they work with a lot of different kinds of people, once you get to know people, people are really much more well, they're more people than they're not. It, it's, it's a strange phenomenon. So call lines are open 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. Um, so I told you about this story. So I, I was reading um, on a couple of friends' websites, and I ended up on this website called Quartzy. And they have this story on here, treadmills were originally designed to punish prisoners. And I thought, 
ah, it's just, just some, like, that's just a funny lead, like clickbait for me to click through. And they're probably going to try to sell me a treadmill, which I already have one. So I don't need one, but I clicked through anyway. And this story talks about how 51.8 million people in the U S who use a treadmill for exercise actually don't know that 200 years ago, the treadmill was invented in England as a personal prison rehabilitation device. It was meant to cause the incarcerated to suffer and learn from their sweat. The treadmills were connected to corn mills or water pumps, which gave the prison uh, an actual, like the, they got work out of the people instead of it just being for them to walk on the treadmill. So it was William Cubitt, a civil engineer raised in a family of millwrights, who created the treadmill, which was also called a tread wheel in the early days, 1818. I mean, can you believe that? Because I, I think the tr- of the treadmill as being a modern device because it, you know, you have to plug it in with electricity and um, it has so many, like it tracks your heart rate and everything else. I would think that it was something that was created within the past 30 or 40 years, but it's actually created in 1818. And Cubit became famous for overseeing the construction of the Crystal Palace in London in 1851. He was knighted by Queen Victoria, and he had a lot of different designs for the early treadmill, which included one that had two wheels that you walked on and the cogs interlocked. But the most popular edition of his treadmill or tread wheel was installed at Brixton Prison in London, and it had one wide wheel. Prisoners pressed down with their feet on steps embedded in the wheel, which moved it, presenting them with the next step. So almost like a stair machine, which they also have at gyms. So it, it's like the, the sport of log rolling, only the log-like wheel was fixed in place. And it was hooked up to subterranean machinery that ground corn. And it wasn't fun, because if you can imagine, grinding corn means they had to step pretty hard. The treadmill could busy as many as 24 prisoners standing side by side along the wheel. Some devices at other prisons were smaller, and most treadmills included partitions so convicts could not socialize. They would be on the treadmill for 10 hours a day and seven hours a day in winter, so basically daylight hours. And this was something that they used on these hardened criminals. And, but, the, you know, they. The, the, the criminals actually used it as a recruitment tool. They'd be on the treadmill all day, so they'd be talking about uh, who their contacts were and who the people who would come in who were there for petty crime would leave with contacts and learn how to become hardened criminals. They would come back out and do even more criminal activity, um, especially the poor kids who were picked up for, like, tiny crimes. They would actually get contacts to go and learn how to pick locks and do all kinds of stuff that would kind of amp them up in their criminal activities. So prison administrators wanted to rehabilitate people, but they wanted to keep them separate from each other so they wouldn't teach each other how to be better criminals, so they partitioned them even further. But the long hours on the treadmill were mind-numbing and boring and physically exhausting, and some of the prison wardens began to use it as a torture device. So they would put them on and not let them have any breaks or anything and speed it up so that the, the people would literally be experiencing a form of torture. And it was a method of punishment because they would not hook it up to anything. They'd just say, you're going to grind air for a while because we don't like the way you're behaving. So it began to become far more popular. By 1842, treadmills were being used in 109 of 200 jails across England, Wales, Scotland. Um, Oscar Wilde, who was imprisoned for gross indecency, worked the treadmill while he was there. But 
over time, by the time 1882, uh, the 18, 1882 edition of Scientific American actually said that the people should be given a more scientific approach to treadmilling, um, that people should be not tortured with it, that they should be treated with respect. And they claimed in their article that the convicts hate the treadmill and there is no useful results that come out of using it. They also were reviewed some of the suggestions that were kind of going around, like attaching dyno, dynamo electric machines to the cranks because they wanted to store electrical energy. I mean, they were getting kind of creative because they thought the prisons could sell the energy and pay for their own upkeep. Now, treadmills weren't really safe back then. There were numerous articles entitled Death on the Treadmill. Um, there were prisoners who died because they had heart disease and they spent too much time on the treadmill and had heart attacks and died. And the overall death rate was one fatality a week um, per prison due to the, the use of treadmills. So it's funny because, or and I don't mean funny, I mean ironic, because they used it for this method of, of kind of breaking the prisoners from bad behaviors, but they ended up killing some of them and there's really no reform involved. So then they started to decline. Throughout the 19th century, um, you know, there were restrictions that were applied, how long they could be on there. The Act of 1898 called for an end to their use. By 1895, there were just 39 in use across Britain and merely 13 by 1901. And so inside of a century, this popular prison device proved too cruel and pointless for Great Britain, but it was just perfect for America. So the treadmill came to America in 1822. It was set up in four different prisons. And the first one installed there cost 3050 U.S. dollars to build, worked 16 prisoners at a time, and ground 40 to 60 bushels of corn a day. Within two years, that prison had built three more, two of them to be used by women prisoners. But by 1827, um, and this is like within a span of five years, the mills had fallen into only sporadic use and were abandoned when the prison relocated. So, you know, the, there was there's a lot more to the story about what to do with criminals, but the treadmill resurfaced in 1913 with a U.S. patent for a training machine. And then in the 1960s, American mechanical engineer William Staub created a home fitness machine called the Pacemaster 600 and started manufacturing home treadmills in New Jersey. He actually used it himself every day, right up until the months before his death. He lived to be 96 years old. Now, in modern times, the treadmill is the top-selling piece of exercise equipment in the U.S., and it is, you know, obviously people still do get injured and die on treadmills, but only by choice because they want to be on there. So I thought it was a fascinating story about the history of the treadmill, and I wanted to kind of share it to get away from, I know we've been talking a lot about immigration, and it is important that we do, so I'm, I don't regret it at all. But it's just something interesting that almost everyone, like I, so many people have these at their house, and if they don't have one at home, they have one at the gym that they go to, and they're either using that or the elliptical or the Stairmaster. Uh, you know, you're using some device when you go there, and now whenever you see it, you can think about how it used to be made of wood and it used to grind corn and prisoners used to be the ones who were on it eight to 10 hours a day. Can you imagine being on a treadmill eight to 10 hours a day and it's not powered by electricity? You don't have any buttons. You don't have a TV attached to it. There's no fan. There's nothing for you to do except walk on this thing and walk and walk and walk and walk. 
crazy pants. Um, so you can read the story yourself if you're interested in some more of it. I didn't share all of it. There's some more history in the story about, you know, the intervening years between the early 1800s and modern day where people were kind of using the treadmill and, and some of the thought process that went in behind changing our prison system from being a physical labor punitive type system to one where there's a modicum of rehabilitation. That's also included in the piece. Um, I also want to point to this week being CPAC week. I will be at CPAC broadcasting on Thursday and Friday, and we are going to have some wonderful guests for you. Super excited about getting uh, a chance to go back to CPAC. I'm not sure how long it's been since I've been there. It might've been two years. I'm not sure. Um, it, for a couple of years, they were scheduling it right around the time that we take our family vacation. So I was unable to attend because I couldn't be in two places at once. Still haven't figured that out yet. Uh, but this is going to be awesome. We'll get to do some interviews. We'll get to reconnect with some people. And I think it's going to be a great program Thursday and Friday. Um, I'm not going to be the only AFR host there. Sandy Rios will be broadcasting from there. And apparently we are in the same booth. So that's going to be fun. Although, you know, obviously she's first thing in the morning and I'm in the afternoon. So we'll see um, how much connections and how much, how many things we can do that are fun. You'll have to keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter. Stacy on the right. Thanks for being here today. If you are leaving us now, you have One News Now news and information up next. And if not, uh, God bless you from the heartland and I'll be with you tomorrow.